It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 24, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Jim Crawford, who raises 30 acres of vegetables at New Morning Farm in Hustonton, Pennsylvania. Jim started New Morning Farm in 1972 and has gained a reputation for an excellent operation with great employee engagement. In this episode, we talk about New Morning Farm's marketing strategy, investment and debt, the H-2A guest worker program, irrigation, and controlling pests in sweet corn. The value that Jim places on knowledge sharing and collaboration shines through in this episode. And talking to somebody like Jim just really drives home just how knowledge intensive organic farming is and how business intensive market farming is. I hope you enjoy listening to this show just as much as I enjoy doing the interview. Remember that the show notes at farmertofarmerpodcast.com have links to all of the resources that Jim mentions throughout this episode. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Fertrell.com. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast, Jim. Hi, Chris. Nice to be talking to you. Great. It's really nice to have you here. Thanks for making time to, to make this interview happen today. I know farming in July is, is not exactly, uh, you know, sit around and, and drink coffee time. Right, right. But it is Sunday afternoon, so I'm... Uh relaxing. I take Sundays off. I like how farmers consider this to be Sundays off is going out and, you know, doing interviews and sharing knowledge and <laughs> collaborating with other people. It's great. Now, don't get me wrong. I didn't always take Sundays off, but I'm 71 years old. So I think I, I deserve it nowadays. <laughs> I, I can remember used to, I can remember thinking to myself, if I don't work Sundays, the whole rest of the week is disaster. I got to work Sunday. But I didn't always, you know, do. I didn't. I didn't work every all day, every day, every Sunday. But but now I definitely take off all day every Sunday. So that's my form of semi-retirement, I guess. <laughs> Those are farmer expectations. Semi-retirement is taking Sundays off. I like right, that. Right. So I'd like to kind of set the scene here with uh, just giving us some insights into into New Morning Farm and. Uh, and and what that operation looks like. So, how big of an operation is New Morning Farm? Well, we're not a lot of acres. Uh, we we uh, we own about ninety five. We rent about a hundred, but we only farm about thirty actually out of all those uh, thirty to forty, depending on whether you count cover crops. Probably more like forty with with uh, you know crop cover crop rotations. Uh, so anyway, we we are. Pretty small acreage, relatively. Um, we grow a lot of different crops, about 60 or so, just about every garden crop, with the exception of melons and sweet potatoes. That's what I usually say. Just about everything else we do cover. Um, we are a uh, retail marketing, uh, direct marketing business. We always have been since the beginning. and um, But we also do a wholesale through our cooperative, which is Susquehanna Organic Growers. Um, we're big in terms of um, our crew. We do employ a lot of people, about 25 or so, all, all season long. In the diet of the season, well, from, from about April, early April to early December, um, long season. We, we, we've extended our season over the years pretty well. Um, so, yeah, we have about 25 total employees. Three of them are H2A guys from Jamaica. Come to us every year, and uh, twelve of them, thir- thirteen of them now are apprentices. We call them that. Um, you know, we bring uh, 
and for to learn. And although we also encourage them to stay with us, and this year every single one of them did stay with us. We have 13 the same exact crew that we had last year uh, of apprentices, uh, which is the first time that's ever happened to us, but it's really great. Uh, so every everybody on the crew now has at least one year experience, and actually several of them have um, as many as uh, six or seven years experience with us. Uh, so we're just in really, really good shape as far as our the quality of our crew and experience and expertise. Um, in my conversations with farmers, that's pretty unusual to have that kind of a retention rate for employees. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely unusual. Uh, we've always had a relatively good success with that because we really prioritize it and really try to get good retention. I really try to keep people, um, at least for more than one season, I always start out telling telling people to apply. We really hope you can stay with us more than one season. Um, it's just such a huge advantage to us when we don't have to train you know, a, a whole bunch of people from scratch every every year. We have had some years like that. In fact, as recently as 06, I actually had zero <laughs> returnees, which is the only year that ever happened. Wow. Um, but, um, um, but actually, we wound up with a pretty good year that year anyway. And, and But now, you know, of course, things are a whole lot easier on me when I don't have to worry about constantly training brand new people and stuff. But anyway, going back to what we do, uh, as I say, about 60 different crops, direct marketing about two-thirds of our production, um, two-thirds by by, by you know, tonnage and, and about three quarters by money since of course the retail prices are a lot higher. So, but, um, we've done that since the beginning. The beginning was 1972. So we've really been around since our 44th season this year. Um, and, uh, we had a long, of course, a lot of city of developing the farm and, and the business. Um, so lots of different stages and learning lots of stuff. It started from pretty much from scratch without any, didn't, didn't grow up in a farm, didn't have any farm in my family. Um, gardening is what got me started. Uh, I did gardening as a kid, vegetable gardening and loved it. And that's really what inspired me when I was in my twenties to give up law school and, and that kind of thing. Um, and, and decide to go to try farming uh, in 1972. And so, um, you know, it's been a lot of years, which, and then we're, we're seeing the benefit of the experience of those years, of course. And, and also, uh, you know, the, our reputation and our word of mouth, uh, you know, success of, of attracting people to work, which is one of our, always been one of our, you know, obviously our big efforts attracting people to, to join our crew and this being the first year that I didn't have to worry about that. But, uh, Anyway, so I feel very pleased that we've made it through this all this time, and um, I'm, I'm I, I love what I do. I, I've always really it's been it's been a lot of difficulties and stresses, but I, I basically never turned never uh, looked back and wanted to wish I had not done this. So anyway, that's where we are now. Two children, by the way, my wife and, and, and I have two two kids that are in their thirties. Both of them worked at the farm for all the time they were at school and summers and so on. But uh, none of them, neither one of them, wanted to uh, take up farming for a career. So they both do totally different things. Um, but we have they they both love to you know to think about <laughs> they're growing up on the farm and uh, and they're really they're glad that they did and feel they got a lot of uh, benefit from from the experience of that. So 
And your son, Arlo Crawford, wrote a wrote a book about growing up on the farm, right? That's right. He did. He wrote a book that was published about a year ago. Um, and uh, it was not a real big book. It was, uh, but it was, uh, uh, a lot of people really enjoyed it. Um, I, he didn't uh, involve himself too much in the marketing of it, which is <laughs> too bad because I think he could have sold a lot more books that way. But, but um, the publishers didn't really require him to. So he wrote it and was done with it. But it's, it's, it was fun. And uh, a lot of people, you know, you got some good reviews, a lot of good reviews. So, yeah. And my daughter is in the food business actually, but not in the farming business. She does, uh, she does a bakery with a partner and, uh, they, uh, they've building up a bakery that live in Pittsburgh. Um, and, um, so they're trying to build up their, their little bakery business. Now you're in South central Pennsylvania. Um, and you yeah. do most of your marketing into Washington, D.C., is that right? Yeah, that's right. Washington, D.C. is actually the nearest big city. You know, we don't, people around us don't realize that, and people in D.C. definitely don't realize that. But as you look at the map, from where we live, D.C. is the closest big city. By Baltimore is about a mile further, and Philadelphia is, so oh, I don't know, somewhat further, probably 30 or 40 miles further. Pittsburgh is 30 or 40 miles further. So we're right in, right in the middle of Pennsylvania, and, uh, and D.C. is down the interstate about 120 miles. It takes me about two and a half hours. Um, and we've always marketed there. Uh, I actually lived there before I started farming, so that, that, that was you know, one thing that inspired me to market there, of course, but, uh, um, but it's turned out a great, great market city for us. Uh, the kind of demographic, the kind of people there have always responded to us really well and want what we, what we sell. So, so we're really glad that we're connected to Washington and, and we've been connected all those years. We have lots and lots of, you know, really steady, loyal customers in the, in the neighborhoods and, um, and lots of personal friends and, so it's it's a good it's definitely a good thing. Even though we we really wished the first few years that we were we were marketing closer to home, but finally after a certain number of years, we realized actually you know we're really glad we have DC because it's such a uh, good uh, a good place for for doing what we do. I mean, there's people so much appreciation for for what we do. So. I think that appreciation and just that um, we found this when we when we started marketing from our farm into the Twin Cities, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, which was two and a half hours, three hours away for us. And it was the it was just an infinite market. We didn't yeah. have to worry about about tapping it out. Another farm right. starting up wasn't a real challenge to us. I imagine you found the same thing in D.C. Yeah, really. Uh-huh. Now, and just in the last few years, this this explosion of farmers markets. When we started, and actually for at least twenty or even thirty years after we started, there was almost no other farmers markets in the whole city of Washington. Believe it or not, now there's something like eighty-five in the Washington, you know, area uh, with its numbers, eighty-five farmers markets, and yet uh, we have not lost really uh, any significant sales from from the competition. So. It's getting there, though. We're getting close to the saturation point, but um, but still, you know, it's uh, it's a great, great market. And as you say, it, it was for all of the time we did it. It felt certainly felt un, unlimited. Yeah. And now you have some 
a, a unique approach to marketing your produce through the farmer's market. I mean, you do the, you do some conventional farmer's markets, but I first heard about you in, um, I think it was 1994. I, I had a guy working for me at the University of Wisconsin who had worked with you and was describing this program that you had of driving your trucks in and basically setting up your own farmer's market in for example, I think he talked about a church parking lot where you you'd pull in with the truck, you'd set up the market. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, yeah, that's what we've always done. Uh, we when we first started marketing, uh, I knew from my childhood we had a, a vegetable farmer that came around door to door, and uh, we saw him every Friday afternoon, and and uh, I just loved that. So I always uh, and he was my hero. <laughs> I always wanted to be Mr. Butterworth. <laughs> So, uh, so when I started uh, thinking about this, you know, we were out there, um, and and of course I had lots of connections to Washington, having just lived there and, and gone to law school there. So um, we started a neighborhood, basically route um, through some neighborhoods that we were familiar with, and uh, we had just put produce in a pickup truck, go go around the blocks, and. Uh, and rang a bell actually, and people came out. I mean, we prepared by leafleting the neighborhood first, but was hugely successful back in 1973. And um, people loved it that we came to, on it to their block and they flocked out of it the minute they heard the bell ring, and, and we sold out of everything we could bring. So that went on for some years actually. And, and then uh, the first, uh, I guess, in that same first year, we started a, a stationary farmer's market in a a, a big intersection in a sort of mixed income neighborhood uh, called Adams Morgan. And that was uh, also successful from the beginning. Uh, there were no other farmer's markets in the city except for one. There was one in a, in a stadium parking lot a long, long way out from the center of town and on the opposite side that we were. So, uh, so we, uh, we had kind of instant success um, just, uh, I think just because, it's just a natural thing that people want. Um, people just naturally, uh, it's nothing new. Uh, it's just uh, an old thing. People love to buy fresh food from a farmer. Um, there's just a mystique about it that, that everybody really, really appreciates. So, so uh, I mean, and what I you know, grew up appreciating as a kid too. So, so anyway, so that has worked. And finally we, we, and we did these sort of neighborhood mobile market things, uh, uh, while we did the other one simultaneously uh, at this uh, this uh, plaza in the, in the middle of a of a popular of, you know of a, of a urban neighborhood, and we did them for many years, and then we gradually consolidated it to uh, one location that was you know sort of our best one physically. It's actually a schoolyard, not a church parking lot, but a school parking lot of a private school in a residential part of DC. Um, and that is since Saturday mornings, it's been there, been the same for, oh, 35 years or something. So it's very, very, you know, well established as a neighborhood institution and very popular with most everybody. So it's a very successful thing. It is just us, although we do represent many growers around us because we bring stuff. We make our own rules and our rules are everything has to be local and everything has to be, we bring it directly from either our own production or or our neighbors and friends around us. So we, we don't ever have anything there that's, you know, from uh, a wholesale market or something like that. It's all, it all comes directly from a farm, even if it's not our own farm. Uh, anyway, so uh, we, 
have done it the same way forever. It just means that we have a lot more to offer than just what we can grow ourselves. We can have, we can sell tree fruits that we don't grow, for instance, and we can sell cheese and baked goods that we don't, you know, that we don't, that the people around us produce. And so we're kind of a, a concentrating, uh, an aggregating spot for a lot of people. And, and we take it to, to this location that, of course, that we have the arrangement with these property owners, the, the school the school people. Um, so it's just, it's really nice because, you know, we, we're not, we're not literally producer only, but yet we're still, um, you know, we still have, think that we have this sort of integrity of the, of the source of, you know, what we, what we're offering and people, I think really appreciate that a lot. It would, it would definitely not be the same if we were just marketers and not growers, you know, it just would not right. no, no way be the same. That note of authenticity would be missing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's our retail market. Well, that's part of our retail market. We also go to attend a uh, market that was started in 1997 by a nonprofit in DC that now has several markets going on. Their very first one was in 97 and it's been hugely successful in the DuPont Circle neighborhood. It's a very urban, central kind of place. Uh, very wonderful market for us. It is producer only. We can only bring there what we grow ourselves. So that has motivated us to expand our diversity of our cropping a lot. And um, we now uh, have probably the most, I bet we have the most diverse stuff uh, to offer at, at that market than, than anybody else in that market. And you just have, oh my gosh, I don't know how many things on our price list. I bet you there's 60 or 80 items, something like that. I don't know, in the mid-season anyway. And uh, it's a very successful market. It's just a really nice institution there. Now that it's been going since 97, especially, it's really, really strong. So so that's our second big market. And then we have a couple other midweek neighborhood things that are much smaller, but uh, it's still okay. okay. And so we did that for many years. And then we... Um, we always always had a little bit of need for wholesale market, and uh, you know because there was always surpluses, uh, or in some cases, you know we 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 knew we could we could grow, uh, you know half again as many acres uh, at, at almost the same cost, and so we we produced more than we could sell retail, and for that we we always were frustrated back in the 70s and 80s. Um, by the fact that we weren't getting credit for it being organic, uh, and that we were, you know, so such small scale that wholesale buyers wouldn't pay any attention to us, wouldn't, you know, and so, so that was the motive for forming our marketing cooperative, uh, which is Tuscarora, as I said, Tuscarora Organic Growers. We we got together a bunch of growers back in 1988, and um, launched this thing that. Uh, then uh, was, of course, really small at the beginning, five or six growers. Now it's 45 or 50 growers and does about $3.5 million a year. Um, so, so it's been a really successful, fun fun thing to be involved in. And uh, uh, and that's our uh, our wholesale outlet. Everything we sell wholesale goes only to, only to the cooperative. And, and then the cooperative is our sales agent, of course, uh, and does marketing uh, to restaurants and and, um, and retailers around D.C. Uh, in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So that's our So you don't sell outlet. anything direct to restaurants or to grocery stores. You're a right. step removed from all of that. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's kind of interesting to me. I mean, you, you just said that the Tuscarora got its start in 1988. I think that's the same year that that crop who does who now is more famous for yeah, organic dairy right. but started off as a as a vegetable co-op and is still doing vegetables. So at the okay. same time they got started. What and and I've 
And I've seen a lot of other cooperatives come and go in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, especially north, you know, Northeast Iowa, Southeast Minnesota. It seemed like there was a new effort every two years and it lasted about two years and was gone. What, when you started Tuscarora, what made the difference there? What, what was the key to making that work? Well, it's hard to identify exactly, but definitely there's some mistakes that we did not make that a lot of other groups have made. Um, I think the tendency, maybe it was sort of an attitude, because the tendency, the tendency is to think of a cooperative as a sort of a uh, an altruistic sort of uh, community, uh, you know, good thing to do, um, as opposed to a hard-nosed business kind of thing to do. And I went into it thinking, well, I want to I want to cooperate with other growers. We can get a big benefit from that, but I want to keep it strictly business so that you know we all can see that this is economically, financially good for us and not just because it's the right thing to do or something. And and so we, we always had that attitude that, um, I mean, for instance, we never let our members donate their time or resources to the co-op. Everything is strictly you know, on the books. Um, if anybody works for the co-op, they get compensated. Um, any benefits that we get um, you know, are strictly business. So, so, uh, that, I think that was one of the things that made that has kept us strong, but also I think that we just have had a really great group of growers from the beginning, just by partly by luck and partly by demographics. There's lots of Amish and Mennonites around us and, and many Mennonite families have been involved with us and have, and, and so, so there just tends to be a little bit less sort of a competitive, you know, uh, doggy dog attitude amongst the growers and, and, and very much a, a cooperative spirit amongst our group. And, and mo- most of us have been with, well, th- th- we haven't lost many members over the years. Uh, so many of us have been involved with it for a very long time. Uh, we all just, we all just work together in a really uh, constructive, thoughtful way. Uh, all the all the uh, development we've done ha- has been, you know, sort of by committee. So, you know, think, well, it must have been a disaster, but it never was a disaster. Our committee, our building committee has always has been, um, I don't know, we just have a really great sort of attitude. We all know why we're doing it. We're doing it to make our farms more profitable. We're not doing it because we're trying to, you know, give something up to the community or something. We're doing it because by by cooperating and getting together, we get economic benefit, and uh, we just really keep focused on that. And so, so and it's, it's interesting too because we're you know, sort of uh, culturally we're all really diverse. There's there's Mennonites, there's uh, completely non-religious people, there's college graduates, there's people who had eighth grade education, there's many Amish families. So we have this huge diversity religiously and culturally and politically, whatever you want to call it, uh, socially. Um, and yet we all stay focused on why we're doing this together. Uh, we're not doing this because we have uh, religious affinities or something like that. We do it because we, we know that it's going to make our farmers more profitable. And, uh, and I think everybody in the cult would agree that it does do that. And, uh, so, I don't know. I, I mean, I have seen a lot of co-ops that fail, uh, and I think many times, it, I, many times in my experience, it's been a lot of times that where you get this sort of martyr complex. You know, somebody does a lot of work for the co-op or, or and, and and doesn't get compensated or doesn't ask for compensation, and so uh, you know, then you get this kind of uh, attitude. Well, I've done more than you guys have, and 
um, I should be getting more out of this, uh, or, or you know, some reason why it creates personal animosities, uh, and we just never had that. Uh, oddly enough, we have never had any significant personal animosity amongst our group or our board. Um, we're we're run by a board of nine nine of us, uh, and um, and then about forty five uh, fairly active members. I really like this idea that you're paying people for their time because I think it's something I've seen happen in a lot of these cooperative marketing efforts is they, that the growers expect them, they don't really see it as an investment. The growers don't see it as an investment. So they're, they're looking at it as being an expense and wanting to absolutely shrink down the margins of the, the co-op to such small levels that it's almost impossible for the, for the place to run. And it's because they're not looking at it as being, this is actually facilitating us getting what we want. It's an investment rather than a, rather than just an an outright expense. Yeah. Yeah. We've always taken the attitude that, you know, one of the best things about the co-op is that we can hire a staff and the staff does the work for us and does the marketing for us. And that's the reason we want the co-op is because then we have this agent that does this marketing for us and we do not have to do it for ourselves. So, you know, we always understood from the beginning, we need employees that are good employees and we need to compensate them. So we keep good employees and, um, and, and, and have the staff doing the marketing for us and the members, just, you know, the whole idea is that the, the cult is there to do the marketing so that the members can stay and work their farms and not do marketing. So, so, um, that just was sort of an attitude we always had. Um, and I think it was, you know, really, really helped us. And yeah. is that an approach that you've taken on your own farm, Jim? I mean, is this part of your success with having the retention with the employees that you've you've really focused on them as being something that allows you to not have to do things. Yep. Yeah, that's true. Um, I definitely needed to, needed to delegate my work over the years, um, every year more and more because the group business grew so much. Um, and, um, you know, yeah, I took, take this same attitude that people are very crucial and uh, getting people who are motivated, right. And who, you know, just have the right attitudes and, and, um, and values. Um, and finding them, which takes a lot of effort, but but expending the effort to find them, and then once we get them, to really try to retain them by by making their working lives interesting and 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 uh, you know, learning a lot and and getting you know furthering their personal goals and, and that kind of thing. So um, so we really have always prioritized uh, the people and and the, the crew and and spent a lot of time recruiting and a lot of a lot of resources on retention you know we'd be paid better than most people we we uh we we do a lot of uh educational stuff that people can feel that they you know are, are really moving forward in their lives and learning and and uh and and then wanting them to uh, apply their increasing expertise to to our business by staying with us so we really uh encourage them to stay with us. Um, we, on the other hand, have had many, many people leave us over the, you know, after hopefully two or three seasons, many, that's a pattern pretty common that people will stay with us two or three seasons and then go and start their own places and various places. And we have people all over the country that started off or, or, or started off as our apprentices. Um, and, uh, but in the last few years now looking towards my retirement coming up when I was in my sixties, I thought, well, I gotta, I gotta really try to keep them, um, and make them apprentices so they can be farmers here on my farm when they become, you know, when they move from being apprentices to farmers and, uh, 
Now we have a bunch of them. We've got, well, we have five, we call them the five seniors on our crew of 13 who really are not apprentices anymore. I mean, I guess we sort of still use that term, but they're really farmers. I mean, they're really growers and, and, and marketers and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's been about uh, delegating my work. Yeah, kind of, you could really say that. Um, and uh, just by luck uh, and, and a lot of effort, uh, we've gotten right to where we want to be, right just in the nick of time when I'm 71 and I have to slow down. And I am slowing down a lot. I'm, I'm still, I still consider myself not retired, but I'm really moving that direction. Uh, some things I am, some aspects I am completely retired from. I, I don't actually do any production anymore myself. I stopped doing any production about two or three years ago um, because I really want the crew to feel that they're on their own, that they can make all their own decisions and figure it out themselves. And of course, you know, they've been, they, they were my apprentices for years before that. And so they have, they, they developed the expertise and the confidence and now they have taken over the production. I, I still work full time, but I, but I'm in the office almost all the time doing you know, all those ugly things that none of them want to do. Like they, you know, insurance and payroll and taxes and, you know, responding to government inspectors and things like that. So, uh, so I, I still am full-time employed by that stuff, but there's a lot less stress on me, and I don't have to multitask like I used to when I was on the tractor, you know, half the time and, and in the office the other half or something like that. So I, I'm really pleased with the with the way it's moving, um, and it's mostly because I just got lucky and got some incredibly good people uh, to help me and, and to take that delegation and, and run with it. So. Well, but I mean, you say you got lucky, but I mean, and, and of course, everything has a little bit of luck to it, but usually luck comes to people who make the opportunities, make things happen in that regard. And it sounds like you've done that. I'm going to ask a question about the apprentice program. When you say you've got apprentices, what what does that mean? Are these folks that are living on the farm? Are they? Yeah, yeah we have, we've got housing for, for all, actually, we have housing for 16 people besides my wife and me. So, wow. um, yeah, we have a lot of housing. Uh, couple of houses are rented, a couple of houses are owned by us, three, three or four. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we house them. They come to us. New ones generally come in the spring, of course, although occasionally we'll take somebody in the wintertime, but usually they come in the spring, new ones, and uh, we require them to stay through the, to the end of the season, which is uh, basically Thanksgiving or so, um, as a minimum. And we also, but we also tell them at the outset, as I said, you know, we really hope you will think about this as more as a multi-year apprenticeship and uh so they they do they they do think that we just we just spend a lot of time interviewing people when we're expecting when we say we've got a, a live one that we really want to get um we just spend a lot of time um you know talking about the idea of staying with us and, and taking this as a real job as a serious thing and not just something that you know i just want to see what it's like or fool with it a little bit or or uh, but we're really looking at words for people who are serious and want to make a career of this kind of work. And, um, so, uh, so yeah, we, I mean, it's true. We, we do, we do consciously, you know, as I say, make an effort to, uh, to find really good people and the ones that are really motivated and really serious. And, um, you know, the whole program is just totally geared to, 
describing it accurately and, and making it um, attractive and, and then following through and keeping it attractive. One of the best things I think that we do that everybody, all our apprentices tell us that they like is the fact that we, we give everybody responsibilities right from the beginning. We don't think of them as just, uh, you know, uh, grunt labor coming in. We think of them as joining a team of managers um, that because a farm like us being as diversified and doing all the marketing and everything is so complex, it needs a lot, a lot of management. You know, you always hear this term labor intensive. Well, we are management intensive. And I think that's really true of most farms like us. It's just that a lot of times the farmer doesn't realize it, but, but you need a lot of management. If you're going to do a professional job of growing 60 different crops, you need a lot of managers. And if you're going to do marketing, uh, you know, retail marketing of a million dollars a year, that's, that's what we do something like that, um, you need a lot of managers for that. You, you don't just need a bunch of grunt, grunt uh, laborers who, especially who come and go, you know, who you replace every year. Oh my gosh, that'd be a nightmare. So, so we just kind of realized a really long time ago that we needed a, a team of managers and that's what our apprentices really are. And, you know, when they come with the right attitude, you can give them responsibilities at the beginning and they start making decisions right away just by common sense. And we always tell them that it's not, you don't need to know if you, if you're the carrot manager, you don't need to have a long experience managing carrots. You just need to pay attention and, and uh, pay attention to your crop. We have, we have a system of crop managers where every one of our crops has a, has a, one of the apprentices is responsible for it. And we just say, you know, the main thing is pay attention. And, and see what this crop is doing and, and ask the right questions um, and and uh, build up, you know, as quickly as you can uh, expertise to the point where you're the carrot expert. And uh, they, they respond to that. Really, they love that and because uh, they feel like they're, they're using their heads. Um, they're making decisions. Um, they're, they're involved, you know, it's, it's their thing. They get identity with it. You know, they really, it, it really, it really works well. So I, I love this, the process that we have, we call it crop, crop, well, we call it crop managers. It's really more than just crops though. They also have processes they manage like irrigation and weed control, pest control. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, at the beginning of every season, we sit down, we, and we divide up all these tasks. Uh, we have it all on a, on a, in a, you know, a, a form uh, a format with uh, lots of uh, areas of responsibility, and um, everybody sits down and negotiates uh, around the table and, and winds up with their little group of jobs and crops for the season. Uh, of course, over the from one season to the next, we try to retain the same ones, and, and we always say we would love for you to to keep your same crops and jobs as you had last year, but we won't require you to, if you really want to trade off one of them or two of them or something, that's okay. As long as you, you know, cut, cut somebody else into taking them for you and then you can, you know, trade around. So, so people do, their jobs do vary from year to year, season to season, but, but in, in some cases they, they stick with these same crops and jobs for, for many years. I, the person who grows potatoes for us is, is actually, she's now actually has the uh, title of, of, uh, a field manager. She's she's really the tractor operator and equipment operator. But but she started out being the potato manager was one of her first things, and here she's been doing it for some like seven years now, and she grows great potatoes. I mean, she knows how to grow potatoes way better than I do, because she spent seven years you know focused on growing on being the potato manager, and uh, 
so she gets a lot of pleasure out of that. She gets a lot of pride out of being a potato grower uh, on this farm. That no, you know, she's the she's the expert, and uh, so and that 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 plays out with a lot of other people, um, with most everybody on the crew, really. And that's what they always say they like most about being with us is that they have serious responsibilities and uh, you know this uh, sense of uh, ownership of their of their crop or their job or whatever. So how does how does that work at a functional level? If you've got I mean you've got a somebody who's in charge of the tractor operation, somebody else who's in charge of irrigation, and then you've got somebody who's in charge of carrots. Um, when yeah, when yeah. you say they're the they're the carrot manager, what are their responsibilities as the carrot manager? Because it doesn't sound like they're necessarily the person who's out there spreading the compost ahead of planting the carrots. Right, right. No, no, definitely not. I mean, the field manager is responsible for fertility and tillage and all those kind of, you know, major processes. Um, and so the field manager does, does the planting, but the crop manager gets involved in, for instance, variety selection, maybe not the first year, well, definitely not the first year, but say in the second year, the crop manager might say, might get with the field manager and say, I like this aspect of this variety. Uh, I think here I found this other one that, that would be a better you know, solution. Um, so, so the crop manager does get involved at the beginning. Um, but it doesn't do you know the all the tillage or all the all the fertility stuff that but but discusses it with uh, say the field manager um and then as the crop is planted and then gets taken care of the crop manager is kind of like the advocate for that crop but sort of focused on that crop so so that so that every crop has somebody who is focused on you know each each person only has maybe four or well three or four crops at any one time you know, the season, you know, strawberry season, of course, is, is only three weeks in June. So that's over with. And then that same person will go to raspberry, say, um, whatever. But um, but anyway, so the, the crop manager follows what's being done with, that, with, with his or her crop and so advocates for it, you know, and goes to the to say goes to the pest control person and says, Hey, don't forget, I'm having this problem with uh, my crop, uh, uh, some pest problem or some disease problem. And the pest control person you know, works with the crop manager. So there's kind of redundancy. You could say uh, there's definitely, you know, more, more than there's, it's basically two people, you know, at every juncture, uh, but one of them is always the advocate for that crop. So, so that crop does not get does not fall between the cracks, which is so common when you have this kind of diversity of crops. You know, is that I mean, I watched it happen on our farm. You know, for the first many years, that you know, crops many crops would just fall through the cracks and nobody would be paying attention. So we said, well, if we're going to grow it, we got to grow it professionally. If we're going to grow it at all, we want to grow it profitably and professionally, and that's going to take attention and management. And every crop deserves. Every crop is unique, has different, you know, has unique needs and needs cultural practices and, and, and pest control practices. So, so we need one person who just thinks about that crop and, and, you know, is the one who always says this one, you know, this day, this crop needs weed control or pest control or, or harvesting or, 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 or whatever. And, uh, so yeah, it really helps us to keep our crops, uh, um, profitable and professionally done. Um, and, uh, we don't, we don't, we would never grow a crop that didn't ever grow a if <laughs> It wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And it seems like as a, as a corollary to that, you've put 
you've put a lot of energy into developing the sorts of infrastructure and line of equipment that you need to adequately support the operation. I mean, I, I know when we've talked in the past, Jim, you've talked a lot about irrigation, about post-harvest handling and refrigeration as being really important facets of your farm. Yeah, really. Yeah, we, we do. We have invested in a lot of equipment. Um, I feel like we're kind of... Uh, Kind of optimum, and a lot really after after all these years, um, we we just have been persistent about upgrading stuff and, and getting the best technology at, at, for our scale. Of course, it's just still a small scale, but um, but we really uh, you know did take the make the investments and take the risks of purchasing equipment and finding the right thing and fine tuning it and in some cases modifying it or adjusting or whatever to make our equipment be really appropriate for you know, for our cropping and um, the scale of our cropping. Of course, we're, we're really small scale on every crop. We don't grow more than a couple acres of any one thing. Well, except for sweet corn, that one we grow maybe four or five acres, but uh, there's no other crop that has that many acres. So, so really, um, we're, we're really small scale. And uh, so some things, of course, are not are not appropriate. I mean, we, could, we, we can't have a carrot harvester, for instance, because we just don't grow enough carrots to justify that. But um, but we try to do it, you know, as as professionally and, and efficiently as we can, even though we don't have a you know a twenty thousand dollar carrot harvester. Um, so so yeah, we we definitely do prioritize equipment investing in equipment and um, and the money it takes, the capital. We we're pretty capital intensive. We we've got debts. So we've always had debt. We don't we're not afraid of debt at all because we know it means makes us more profitable. Um, as long as we can afford our payments and our, the you know the cost of the capital, the, the interest, then we know we're we're on the right track. Uh, that our investments are good. And of course, what we have to know from our experience with the crop of what this what the investment you know is going to give us back, and that's really hard to do in the first year or two. Um, but if you really keep paying attention and thinking about that, um, and being willing to put in the money by either you know using your own or, or borrowing it, um, then um, then you will get um, you know you'll eventually get the right equipment to to do things efficiently. And, uh, you know, that's really important. Could you talk about an example of that decision-making process that you might go through in identifying a need and then making an investment and then assessing whether that investment is working out? Oh yeah. Well, let's see. I mean, there's so many, I'm trying to think of a good example, the best example of it. Um, I mean, over the years, of course, it's, it's, it's uh, increased in complexity and, and sophistication drastically. I mean, there was a time when you know, we argued about, we just we argued with ourselves about whether we needed 40 horsepower tractor for our main tractor or, or 60 or whatever. Um, we right. actually came down to, uh, we, use, <clears throat> we, we have three Kubotas that are 68 horsepower, uh, all as, as, as identical as possible, uh, one with the loader. So, I mean, we had to think about that a lot. Um, that was one of our biggest investments when we bought the first new tractor uh, that, you know, that, and it wasn't until 2002, believe it or not, after 30 years, we finally said, hey, we need to have the right tractor and we need to have one that's really reliable, one that has all the features that, that make us make it perfectly adapted to what we do, like like a creeper gear, for instance, and, you know, all, all the features that are and, and diesel. We had gas tractors before that. Uh, we didn't have a diesel tractor. We didn't have until 2002. And that was just an example of how oh. 
stubborn we were about and really making the mistake of not investing the money we should have. Um, and, but finally we did. And that, uh, you know, really sits, uh, you know, ramped us up drastically when we did that. And that was inspired us to do a lot more. Uh, we, we, st- we did a lot of investment in equipment before that, but, but really it took us that many years to, to really kind of make the leap and say, you know, a $30,000 tractor is, is justifiable for us. Um, and, uh, and certainly in the last 13 years and so too, you know, we, we really proved that it is, um, and it has ramped up our production uh, when we when we went to that. Um, yeah, you said that was something that that out of stubbornness you didn't do it. But did, was yeah. it was it also that it wasn't the right investment to make for those first thirty two years, or is that something that if you could have done it ten years earlier, it would have been better? Yeah, it would have definitely been better at least ten years earlier, maybe fifteen or so. Not at the beginning. No, no, definitely not. I and mean, that's a good point. We did not. Uh, we could not have justified it in the first ten years of our business for sure. Um, of course, you know, it, things have changed a lot since we started farming. When we started farming, there was no, there were no models to look at. There was just, or at least not, not anywhere near us geographically. So, so it was really hard to know what was the appropriate, say, tractor for us, you know, and, uh, we just were kind of in the dark. Whereas today, you know, young growers starting up can look around and see a whole, whole lot more you know, examples of, of, of smaller scale vegetable farms around in the, in the Northeast, for instance, um, and can see other people, you know, doing things and, and, uh, and can be, uh, you know, be apprentices on a place like mine, you know, uh, and, and see then, you know, so, so there's just the models are out there now that weren't there before. So for, for, for our first 10 or 15 years, we were so much in the dark about questions like that. You know, what's the right factor for us? We, we we just really didn't know for sure, um, and and we had the same timidity about you know about uh, debt and borrowing that that so so many you know younger um, growers have. Um, we just didn't uh, um, fully realize how important it was to you know we had to uh, spend money to make money and and we had to or borrow money to make money and. We sort of knew it, but we didn't really know it until just the last 15 or 20 years. And we, for instance, a uh, vacuum seeder. We bought a vacuum seeder for the, you know, for the field, um, four-row Matter Max vacuum seeder. We didn't do. We did that in finally in 1996 or seven, I think, something like that. Uh, and that was a big. That was six thousand dollars. And I, I can remember thinking for that, no way would I ever spend six thousand dollars on a seeder. This is not. We just don't have that kind of money. No. And, uh, but of course we could easily get our hands on that kind of money. So, uh, we, we spent it and, uh, we borrowed it or whatever. And it was a huge, a huge improvement in our efficiency. And, uh, um, so that's, that's been the experience with everything we bought. There's just definitely a, a few that were you know more outstanding that way than other things. Uh, that was one of them, that vacuum seeder. So could you go into that a little bit? How did, how did a vacuum seeder make a big difference on your farm? What, what were the practical outcomes of that for you? Well, okay. We were doing our seeding with, uh, we'll Planet junior, uh, units that we actually, well, we, we use push, push units, uh, one row push units, um, for actually many things for many years, um, you know, to get just rudimentary improvement in, you know, in our, seed spacing and stuff like that. But of course it doesn't simulate the seed. So you still don't get, um, good, you know, good spacing that you can avoid thinning and stuff. Um, so we did that for quite a few years, uh, 
Planet Juniors, um, and then we realized that we were spending an awful lot of time in thinning. And we weren't getting, you know, stands that we wanted because we didn't have the seed uh, placement that we needed. And so we looked at different options, um, but we came down to realizing that a vacuum seeder that, you know, is uh, operated by uh, by PTO that, you know, feeds a vacuum and sucks the seed up to, to a plate. Um, was going to singulate the seed and place it very, you know, very precisely and depth precisely. And so, and we got much better stands and we knew we would. By the time we bought that thing, we knew it was going to solve all kinds of problems for us as far as, you know, establishing the crop. And, uh, uh, as soon as, the one that actually inspired us the most was sweet corn because we were growing sweet corn for many years. Uh, we knew we had to grow it because it was, our customers really wanted it and it would made our, made us more popular in the market. But we, we, we could not grow our profit because we couldn't couldn't get really good stands. We could we, we would plant and we'd get um, you know seed spacing, two seeds here and five inches more one and then fifteen inches more one or two and then you know what I mean. That's what a plant right. junior will do. Um, and so we knew uh, and and we and we looked at corn planters. You know that that uh, the other kind of farmers use. You know the old fashioned that do singulate the seed, but they didn't handle sweet corn seed very well. Um, because of the shape and, and you know uh, of the seed, so um, so anyway, we just knew that uh, we could we could get much better luck with our sweet corn if we could plant it with a, uh, a cedar like that, and uh, it it did drastically uh, improve our uh, stand. We didn't we didn't have to thin our corn anymore. We used to thin it by with, with hose, you know, to get the spacing right, and we did that for many years. And oh my gosh, the the cost of that labor of doing that was outrageous. Now we 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 put down a seed every nine point three inches, and uh, you know whatever it is, and uh, we get really good stands. And we have gotten our street corn. The costs of growing the crop drastically reduced by this equipment, not just the seeder, but also the cultivating equipment and the irrigation equipment stuff. So, so. Um, so yeah, we just observed the fact that you know by adjusting the right equipment for for each each problem, um, you know we were going to make the crop more, more viable uh, profitability wise, and uh, it, it it's worked out that way. It really has. And I imagine some of that has to do with the scale of your operation as well. I mean, you've you've commented that in some ways you're a small operation with with thirty to forty acres of of tilled ground, but in some ways, you know. From a lot of people's perspective, that makes you a fairly large operation. Uh, I imagine that scale has something to do with making making the debt and the investments actually be worthwhile because you're able to use that matter back on a lot of acres. For sure, absolutely, for sure. There's no way I can afford that if I was farming five acres or, or even 15 acres. Like I don't think I could afford that matter max cedar. Um, so, so yeah, I think the scale is really important. I love the scale we're on now. You know, we've been we've been continuously, you know, we've been smaller all the years until now, uh, more or less. I mean, we we actually reached sort of the level we're at. We kind of reached uh, some years ago, but I, I love the scale we're at. I don't want to be bigger. I don't want to be a whole lot bigger. It would take more people. Um, I, I I don't, but I but I really don't want to be smaller either. I'm really happy being aside, and that's the best reason you just mentioned, Chris, was the idea that you know that way we can afford to have decently, you know, serious equipment for for for, uh, for us that uh, you know we can justify 
um, because of the scale we're at. And that just applies in so many different cases. I mean, all of our equipment, we need this and in many other ways too. I mean, have, to, to be able to have the number of people we have to work together is so much better than when you're trying to do, well, for instance, like in our, maybe our 15th year or something, maybe we were doing 35 or 40 crops, but we were doing it with, you know, four apprentices or something. And, um, and we were never, you know, able to keep up. And it was just a constant frustration. We can't keep up. We can't keep up. We're, we're, we're behind eight ball all the time. And so by being the scale we are now and, and having, you know, 13 apprentices and, you know, about, about 12 or 13 other people, um, we can keep up with our work and, um, and, and we never feel like, like we used to feel that we're always behind and we're never going to catch up and the weeds are taking over this field or whatever. And we can't, you know, the irrigation is not right because we don't have, we didn't have the time to do it right or whatever. So, so the scale that we're at is just really satisfying to me. Um, I, I, you know, and of course there's this endless argument, well, you can make a living on an acre and a half or something. Well, okay, you can, but you can also drive yourself crazy that way too. And, uh, um, and particularly if you're very diversified, which, whichever, you know, which a lot of people recommend and which is a good idea for a small farm to be diversified, you know, it's dependent on any one crop. And we've seen that they had that experience huge number of times that um, having so many crops really saves us from, you know, the failures of one will be taken up by another or so on. So, um, so anyway, I just think the scale is really important. And if people get hung up on, you know, sort of almost like a moral uh, idea, well, small is beautiful. And I, I never, I certainly wouldn't want to farm more than 10 acres or I certainly wouldn't want to have more than three employees or something. Uh, it's just silly to get hung up on numbers that it's totally arbitrary. You, you look and it's such a spectrum. I mean, you look out there, I mean, I know farmers a lot like us that are way, way bigger than us. Um, and I mean, 80 acres or 120 acres or, you know, and, and I, I don't have any desire to be that big. Um, but I also, you know, would not never want to be 10 or 15 acres either. So, so I don't know. It's, it's probably, you know, partly just your, you know, your own personal experience and what you've, you know, what you've been through that leads you to a certain scale. But, um, but I always just think it's really silly to say, oh, that, that farm is way bigger than I would, you know, could justify doing because it's not, it's just not, uh, I don't know, it's not the right thing or something because I'm, you know, I'd be, I'm not too big. I, I see that a lot. I think, and I think that part of that's recognizing too, is that you have to have, to have stuff left over, to have, to have money left over at the end of the year, you know, that even that requires a certain amount of scale. You know, you, you, yeah. you got to grow, you got to grow enough to be able to make the investments and to be able to hire the people so that the farm's not just completely dependent on you. Yeah. Hiring the people is, Hiring the people is such a big deal too. And so many people get hung up on the idea that I don't want to be an employer. I don't want to be a boss. I want to do the work myself. Um, um, and then maybe they'll, they'll, they'll break down and they'll say, okay, I'll we'll, we'll bring in two apprentices or something, but I don't want to have three or four or whatever. And, uh, um, I just love having this many people because, because everybody feels, you know, the morale is so high because everybody feels like somebody that, 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 that Everything's being taken care of. Nothing is, nothing is, is you know, being is, is being ignored. And and uh, uh, fields are pretty clean, and uh, you know, harvests are pretty serious. And and uh, so so it really, our morale is really good. Uh, and I think it's a lot of it is because of the number of people we 
we do are willing to hire and uh, um, and and take so much strain off of me and and uh, you know that I know um, somebody else is taking care of you know, whatever. So, Jim, we're going to pause here for just a moment for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. When you talk to Carl Hammer, the company founder, he'll remind you that potting soil is a set of promises about a product that has to do a really hard job, produce a healthy plant in a restricted media volume. When I started farming, I focused on the cheapest ingredients I could get so that I could make my own potting soil. But as my farm grew and as I saw the challenges that we were having getting great plants out of the greenhouse, I gave it a second look and I came to the fairly obvious conclusion that success in the greenhouse depends on the success of the plants that are growing there and that just like in the rest of farming especially organic farming that success rests on the stuff that the plant is growing in the cost of your potting soil isn't insignificant but it's a small cost relative to plant material heat and labor and if the media fails the rest of the enterprise is a sunk cost so get the media that works year after year after year and grow some great transplants vermontcompost.com the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. The oldest producer of organic fertilizers in the United States, Fertrell has developed a reputation for excellent quality and service, and not just in growing crops. Fertrell also offers a full line of support for livestock producers, providing customers with recommendations for base rations that can be blended with their line of NutriBalancers, which are a special blend of minerals, vitamins, and direct-fed microbials to keep your livestock both well-fed and well-bred. They can also custom blend minerals to meet your specific nutrition needs. In the same way that soil provides a foundation for plants, you need high-quality support for your livestock, whether that's dairy or beef cows, poultry, horses, or alpacas. I like that Fertrell isn't just a fertilizer company. They're drawing on a wider variety of knowledge and applying their principles in a broad context that provides ample opportunities to observe the validity of their approach. Fertrell, better naturally. Fertrell.com. How has some of this scale started to play out as you've been interfacing with organizations like the Food and Drug Administration around food safety or other, I know you've, you're at a size and you're in a location where I think you tend to attract the, the interest of regulatory agencies uh, with your proximity to, to DC, but also just your visibility in the marketplace. Um, do you feel yeah. like your your scale has made it easier or harder for you to interact with those those regulations? Well, I don't know. It's that'd be hard to answer. I mean, our biggest problem of of that kind of thing is labor inspections, and that's because we're on the H two A program. Uh, that specifically, I mean, their policy is specifically to inspect farms that that choose to do H two A for their labor, uh, you know, which is a visa program uh, to bring people, uh, farm workers from other countries. That's what H2A is. And we decided to get into that uh, back in about uh, six or seven years ago uh, because it was an alternative to ha- having illegal, you know, uh, people from Mexico, which is such a common pattern. And we did it too for a while. Uh, we were very uncomfortable with it because we knew we, we were vulnerable to getting you know, 
getting regulated and, uh, and fine and stuff. Anyway, so the HCA program, though, uh, does definitely lead to these inspections. And because of, it's very, very complicated, uh, lots of rules about it, and and uh, you got to be on top of it. So, so it's, a, it's a big, big trade-off. Uh, it's a wonderful program in many ways, but it's uh, horrible in other ways because it brings the inspectors. So I don't think that our scale has anything to do with that. It's, it's a, in fact, we're really small as far as H2A employers go. But we only have three. I mean, plenty of growers who, who go to H2A you know, have a lot more than three. Um, and so it's kind of ironic because we're so small, uh, these, these three guys, and yet uh, you know the whole United States Department of Labor comes down right on us and and, and comes and enlists at every, every tiny detail of our operation to make sure we're following every tiny rule, which are so, so many. So, so it's a big, it's a, nightmare really in, in many ways, but the advantages of it are yeah, actually are outweigh that because we have these fantastic farm workers from Jamaica that are, that, and we get, we love them. They, they, they're part of our family kind of, and, uh, they are incredibly good workers. They just are incredibly productive in ways that I've never seen any American employees ever be. And, uh, they understand, you know, farm work in, in ways that uh, I've never, well, not never, but I rarely see with American employee, employees. So, um, right. so it's a, it's a great, great program, but it does have this huge drawback. And and it's not because of our scale; it's just because we we do that. It's because uh, you're we, engaged with it. Yeah. yeah. Now the FDA this is another thing. We we did, did have this famous kind of labor inspection or uh, not labor, but uh, no, uh, uh, FDA. Um, Food safety inspection. It, well, it wasn't. It was actually not a formal inspection. It was definitely not that, but it was a visit, and it was very upsetting. Um, but uh, but that I think was really because of, yeah, we not because we're a certain scale, but because we are pretty visible. Because I'm, I'm the president of the cooperative, and uh, I think they probably saw that if they made an example out of me, you know, that 40 other growers would take the hint, uh, whatever. But. Uh, um, but that was sort of that was a one-time thing, and I, you know, that that has faded, and it, I'm not that worried about it now because that whole program has um, the FDA's uh, you know, farm safety, food safety on farms uh, program has um, evolved in a good way. Now it's it's not it's not finished evolving by any means, and it might still be really difficult and really problematic for us, but. Um, but uh, I think that we were targeted because of the co-op. That's my guess. I don't know. Certainly not because we're huge, or, or, or and probably not even because we're near DC. But because actually, I mean, the the, the people who dealt with us were state people, not not. Uh, I mean, they were the, the they were federal people, but they were originated in our state, not from DC. So, are you anticipating that the new food safety regulations, when they finally do get around to rolling those out, are going to have a a big impact on you? You certainly are above the scale at which I mean, you're not going to be exempt. That's right. By That's any right. means, we're not exempt. That's right. Five hundred thousand dollars is. It's a really, really low number. I mean, to be a profitable farm and do five hundred thousand dollars in sales, uh, you can be an awful small farm and still do five hundred thousand in sales, as you know, Chris. I mean, so, uh, so yeah, we're not exempt at all, um, and uh, it could turn out to be absolutely horrible. But on the other hand, I do see there's a lot of people, such as Brian Snyder at Pasa, has been fantastic about working with with the FDA about that and, uh, and getting to see, getting them to see a lot more common sense. And, uh, um, 
And so they have really come around and become a lot more realistic about the whole process and a lot more reasonable. So um, I don't know. It's really hard to say how that's going to turn out and play out over the next few years. But uh, it doesn't look as bad as it did just a year ago, actually. Uh, a lot because of what Brian Snyder and two or three other people like the like NSAC and a few other organizations have, have jumped in and really tried to support us on it. And, uh, so who knows? But let's just hope that it stays reasonable. Yeah. All right. Well, Jim, with that, I'd like to I'd like to turn to our lightning round. A uh, few questions that we like to ask everybody that comes on the show. Now, we talked a lot about the the Mattermax cedar. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping that maybe there's something else that's actually your favorite tool on the farm. Mm, my favorite tool on the farm. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know that I, <laughs> nothing pops into my head, by the way. I know one of the, one thing, though, that was amazing revelation to us. It's not a real big tool, but we got a, uh, and there again, it's a seeding tool, but we got a, a, a tool in the greenhouse for seeding flats that is a vacuum, also a vacuum seeder that has a plate, you know, with, uh, with holes that, uh, and, a, and a vacuum that draws the seed up to each hole. And we, we, when we, we went for, I don't know, 30 some years without that thing, thinking that we couldn't afford it. It was like over a thousand dollars. Imagine that $1,000, so much thousand dollars. Yeah. And we invested in that thing. And I bet you, you know, in the first season we paid for it, you know, two times over or three times over. And, uh, uh so it, it's relatively small and, and not a, not a big investment in terms of, you know, total dollars, but it did not look affordable to us. And, uh, almost the minute we got it and watched how we could use it and what it did for us, we realized, Oh my gosh, it's, it's not just affordable. It's, you know, we, we absolutely could not live without this thing. It just revolutionized our plant production in our greenhouse, which is a big deal. I mean, we do most of our crossroad transplants. And, uh, so that vacuum cedar, you know, drastically improved our efficiency of, of creating, you know, hundreds of flats uh, of seeded flats. And, uh, and, uh, you know, when I realized, gosh, you know, $1,200 for that, or whatever that is around 1200. Um, that just had such an impact. Um, so that's, that's sort of the one I think of a lot, but there's many, many others. I can remember when we first got refrigeration. Um, that was a long time ago, of course, but uh, we actually went for several years without a real cooler, and we thought we could we could manage, um, and um, that we didn't want to spend the money. It was going to be you know three thousand dollars to get a cooler <laughs> back then in the seventies. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, when we got that cooler, oh my gosh, it just changed everything in so many ways that we didn't foresee. It meant that we could all of a sudden we could harvest, you know, anything any day instead of having to harvest it all on Friday. So for the Saturday market um, and things like that. Um, uh, so it, it, it just changed everything for us and, and made us so much more, uh, uh, eliminated so much stress. Um, gave us so much better quality of our crops at market because they could be refrigerated beforehand. We could be pretty cool and stuff. So, so refrigeration was one of our first big revelations that, and, and irrigation was another one. And when we, we, we started out with this little tiny pump that we adapted for irrigation that cost $25. That's <laughs> the irrigation <laughs> pump we had. It was a used pump that was designed to uh, put uh, drinking water in a chicken house or something. We, we modified it so it would you know, pump uh, you know, 50 gallons a minute or whatever at uh, you know, 90 PSI or something. And, uh, you know, we got it for 25 bucks and we thought, oh, this is great. Well, 
we are very soon realized, well, we can't really effectively irrigate that thing. And we can't keep the water and get the optimum water on the crops. And uh, so when we when we then went and we spent, I think it was uh, a couple thousand dollars on the first serious irrigation pump, which was a PTO-powered um, pump, um, we just suddenly got to the point of being able to effectively irrigate. And, and our the viability and our crop quality just drastically improved and, and uh, our stress level drastically increased, uh, decreased because we, we knew we were, we were getting enough water to the crop. So, so there's just been many, many experiences where um, I can't say one favorite. I mean, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of equipment I look at and say, oh, that's so fantastic. You know, I love that piece of equipment, but there's not just one. I don't know. There's many of them. Yeah. It's great. Hey, I, I actually want to, I mean, I know we're in the lightning round here, so we're supposed to be doing a bunch of rapid fire questions, but you mentioned the irrigation and I, this is a story that I tell again and again that, that you told about, um, about actually experimenting with irrigation and, and paying yeah. attention to yeah. getting the right amount of water on yeah. the crops. Could you relay that here? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, we had that experience I just described of going from very, very poor irrigation to you know, decent irrigation. And then we took another step after many years of going from decent irrigation to optimum irrigation. And when we, we, we learned that it was like a huge revelation too. And that was only, Oh, it was only like 10 years ago, but we were drip irrigating like everybody. And we were doing that. We thought we were okay. And we'd be out there saying, you know, <clears throat> uh, well, we had money. We got to run the irrigation for, you know, three hours, two, three days a week. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're going to run it for three hours or something. Um, and we did that, and we did it for years. And then we finally thought, um, let's uh, let's see what it would be like if we really optimized the irrigation and uh, and, ch- and checked and checked the moisture level, you know, uh, frequently to make sure that we were getting really optimal. And, and of course, we found out all kinds of things uh, by really paying attention uh, that the soil type. You know, there is a big variable in terms of how much water you need and how fast it leaches down and stuff. Um, and the crop and the and the crop uh, maturity, you know, where you know you drastic increase in demand for water when the crop gets bigger and leafier and stuff, and then it starts producing fruits and whatever. So, um, so we did this interesting thing. We put we 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 started we started because we were we were transplanting beans early in plastic uh, snap beans, and we had. Uh, I forget exactly a certain number of row feet. I mean, some 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 thousands of row feet of plastic, with some thousands of transplants in in there, and uh, and drip irrigation, of course, under the plastic. And uh, so we 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 did the first year, and we got we got seventy five bushels of beans out of this planting, and they were really really early, and we were thrilled, and we thought this is great, seventy five bushels. So, but in the next year, we I forget what, it, what exactly you know, motivated us to do it. But we thought, well, what if we, if we really paid attention to the irrigation better? Uh, and uh, when we did, we improved it some. Uh, and, and we found that we, instead of 75 bushels, we got 125 bushels. So then we said, well, let's really, you know, we just uh, each year, you know, each of uh, the next two years, we, we just got more and more focused on it. And we had a person who, who just, whose job was just to really watch it like a hawk and 
and probe all the time and figure out, in, in other words, really getting an optimum. And we went from 75 at the beginning to 225 bushels from the exact same planting, the exact same number of row feet of plastic, the exact same number of transplants. And we, we tripled the, uh, we tripled the yield from, from that same thing. Just, just through, just by, through intensively by, managing your, your water. It, it, right. Exactly. And, and optimizing and not because, you know, drip irrigation, especially you don't see it. You don't, you, you, it's all under there. It's kind of invisible under, under the plastic and stuff. And so you're not really aware of it. And you just think, well, my crop looks good. It's, it's green. It's not wilting. It's not, it doesn't appear drought stressed, you know? Um, but you don't realize that, by by giving it the exact right amount of water and keeping the water the moisture level optimum all the time, every day, all day, every day, that it suddenly its potential for you know for yield drastically increases. And uh, so um, that was just a big big lesson to us. And now we we pay a lot of attention with our drip, especially um, you know overhead is so different. Um, you're not trying. You know you know you can't maintain often moisture every day because, you know, it's a cycle. Uh, basically about once a week, we try to put an inch of water on once a week. And, and that's adequate for sweet corn uh, as a rule. And, and we do that with various other crops. But uh, um, but with drip irrigation, though, it's so different because you, you really can uh, keep the, uh, the level optimum at 24 hours, you know, seven days a week. And, uh, and, and you just get this production that's uh, amazingly improved by it. So. And optimal again by, I mean, that's not, you're not running the irrigation 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but you're, you're monitoring frequently and frequently enough. And never going on on like a calendar thing, well, three days a week, uh, so many hours, three days a week, never doing that, but saying, okay, now it needs more. Now it needs less. Now it needs this. And, you know, in other words, uh, and responding to the, to the situation every day. Um, and, uh, and, and never just having a schedule, a routine, uh, thing for the water because conditions vary so much. I mean, obviously with the weather, but also, you know, with the crop and the maturity of it and all that stuff. So I just, I just love that story. Cause you know, I'm, I'm all about management. I'm all about, about paying attention and, and yeah. Yeah. monitoring and then controlling yeah. to get the results that you want to get. And I just, I think that's such a perfect example of how paying more attention, really yeah. just paying more attention gets exactly. you, Exactly. A tripling of the crops in the beans. Yeah. That's just amazing. But don't forget to, to do that. You've got to have the people. And you not only have right. to have the number of people, you have to have people who are, are, are willing to do that and, you know, who are motivated to do that and who care enough. And, and um, you know, so, um, so you, you, you've got to have the people to, to, to have that capacity, you know, of paying that attention. And that's really the story of our crew um, uh, and all these crop management stuff is that, you know, we do have them. To and they do have the time to pay attention to the, to every one of those crops, and 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 to give it optimal moisture, for example, um, or whatever else it needs. So, um, so yeah, you got to have the people. I want to ask a question about engagement. You talked about having people engaged. I know I had crews that were disengaged. How do you foster that engagement, Jim? Well, it really goes back to the things I was saying before. Um, spending a lot of time on recruitment. Spending a lot of time, you know, looking at a lot, a lot of resumes and a lot, a lot of people and talking to them endlessly in the in the winter, in the spring, whatever you, whatever you're hiring. So, um, so in other words, getting people who are serious and who you know, are going to 
uh, being motivated right. And um, and then giving them, you know, this is saying before too, giving them these responsibilities so that they are engaged because they, they have to be engaged. And, and uh, you know, otherwise they're going to be pretty embarrassed if their crop fails because they didn't pay attention. So, so um, um, but yeah, our people are really engaged, especially now. I mean, you sent this great crew that uh, just so, so uh, motivated really and, and really care about their jobs and, and they know they they know their jobs are only theirs. They know that you know, hey, if I'm going to be running the greenhouse, it's me. It's it's up to me. And if it's it's and there's nobody else that's going to do it for me, I got to do it. And um, so we have this fantastic uh, greenhouse person right now who is so engaged with her job. She cares so much about her greenhouse, and it's a lot of it's because she knows that it's hers, and it, it you know it really does. It's really hers. Nobody's gonna, and I don't even go down there. I don't even go down there and you know, crack the whip on her or anything like that. No, she knows I'm not gonna. She knows she knows it's it's the results that matter, not pleasing the boss or something. So, so um, yeah. So, and we just see that all over the farm. I mean, everybody's really engaged right now. It's it's kind of the best it's ever been for us. Just partly you know, for the luck of it, but, uh, but we do have people who are really engaged. Yeah. And I, and I know what it's like not to have that, you know, and, and you just don't, it's just pathetic when, when you try to, when you're trying to, and you, you know, every crop is invested, obviously, as you know, it represents a pretty serious investment. And, uh, when, when people are dropping the ball and, and not being engaged with them, um, you know, you just wasted an awful lot of money in, in the sales of that crop. So, what what have you done? Have you had success turning that situation around, either with individuals or with with larger groups, when things aren't going right, when people uh-huh. are disengaged or dropping uh-huh. the ball, uh-huh. or is it just to fire yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. and start over again? No, I know I we've had we've had well, it's never been smooth. I mean, it's never it's not always smooth. Obviously, with you know, people like that, there's always problems here and there. Um, I mean, right now it's a really rosy picture, but only really recently, though, we had some serious, you know, some serious problems of the group and people who who weren't as motivated or whatever. Um, but 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 what I always say is talking. In, it's the it's the old cliche, you know, communication. You got to have communication. And there were times in recent years, especially when I was less engaged myself, that there wasn't enough of that, and there wasn't enough. Communication, and we we always start with a meeting in the morning. And when I was doing it myself, um, you know, it would usually be a pretty long meeting because I thought the people needed to have a lot of communication. They, they needed to be brought in so that they they knew what everybody else was doing, so that saw the big pictures that would help them motivate them. Well, so then as I and, and I withdrew from that process somewhat. Uh, a couple of years ago and turned it over more to the crew leader stuff. And the first year or two, it was definitely inadequate. And the media, and I'd say, well, how long are your morning meetings typically? Oh, 10 or 15 minutes. No, no, you can't do it in 10 or 15 minutes. You got to keep, keep people engaged. You got to be talking and people have to be talking with each other and the, with the boss. And, and, um, so, um, so I really saw, I, I think I really saw, um, uh, improvement in in that by just <laughs> having better communication, uh, having spending more time and more effort on more the communication time. rather yeah. than less. A lot of people, especially young, motivated you know managers like crew leaders, will say, "Well, the thing is, we got to get out there and get to work. That's the main. We got to get everybody going. We got to. We can't always sit around here talking. It's just not productive." And what I always had to say was, "Well, it's not productive 
tangibly and, and, you know, you, you couldn't, you can't get the results. You can't see the results uh, instantly, but uh, you, you, it's, it's an intangible thing, but it's so important to have this, to take the time to get everybody informed so that they know, as I said before, the big picture is so important when, when every individual knows what other people are doing and what the, what the goal of the day is, what the goal of the whole farm is and that kind of thing. Um, and you, you can't get that without talking. You gotta have, you guys just invest the time to sit around talking, <laughs> even though you feel like, well, we got to get out there with the hose or something. Um, you, you know, you, you just need to have that time and, and address that. So, uh, I think that's a, that's a really a big factor in, terms of morale and keeping people engaged. Yeah, it's just communicating with them. And, and right. I'm also talking to them individually and letting them know, you know how, uh, how their performance is and giving them feedback and, and letting them give feedback back to you. Um, that's just another way of, of communicating that, that you know, you, you, you never want to prioritize it because there's always something out there tangible and physical, you know, the nuts and bolts kinds of things that you feel like you should be paying attention to instead of sitting around here, you know, gabbing about people's feelings and things that are bothering them. <laughs> but you've got to do it uh, to keep people, you know, to keep people feeling you know, engaged and, and motivated. So, and then and, and that things are fair and that they're getting, that they're having their opportunity to voice their objections or their complaints or, or, and to hear, you know, hear, especially hear praise for their work, their efforts and stuff. So that takes time to talk. And it's many times it's really hard to, to feel that it's worth it because it's so intangible, but yet it, but it really is. Yeah. Well, and I think it's something that, that really does rely on having a, farm that fundamentally works too. you know, to be able to take that time, you can't be constantly yeah. operating from a standpoint right. of crisis. You have that's to be right. operating right. from a standpoint of control. That's right. And that's why you, you've got to, I mean, it's such, such an important thing in this scale thing and the number of people you've got, so that you have the right balance so that you have the time to do these things and you're not always going, jumping from crisis to crisis and just trying to, you know, um, barely keep ahead or, or trying to keep ahead or something because you, you're, yeah, you, you know, what you're saying is, is absolutely true. Yeah. All right. Um, so, so back to the lightning round then, uh, what's your favorite crop to grow, Jim? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that, Chris. Um, gosh, I, I just don't think I have a favorite. I have many, <laughs> many favorites. Um, sweet corn. I just love, I love to eat it. I'm really personally motivated by by eating the stuff we grow. I get so much pleasure out of eating stuff that we grow. So, and I, I probably eat more sweet and tomatoes. Tomatoes and sweet corn both. I I just eat vast quantities of both of them, and I, and I get so much pleasure out of it. So, so yeah, my favorite crops. I mean, and I don't think that they are most profitable crops, probably, but um, but uh, I love both of those too. Um, you talk about you talk about enjoying that so much, and I think I think there are a few crops that are that are as com- that, that compare to sweet corn or tomatoes for being for just really summing up what it means to to grow your own food. You know, yeah, to really be able true. to go out right. and grab that fresh corn off the off the vine or off the stock and put it in a pot and and have it, or to you know take that take that vine ripe tomato that's really a vine ripe tomato and and take that into the house. And, chomp down on it. I just, I, I couldn't, I actually couldn't agree. couldn't agree more about the sweet corn. And we, we've had so many years of experience with it that we've gotten to the point where we can grow it with almost no worms and really beautiful, you know, size and quality and 
tip fill and that kind of stuff. So really, really proud of it. And uh, at my kid, for instance, it's one of my favorites to sell, sell because it's so beautiful and delicious and, and, uh, and the customers appreciate it so much. So, so yeah, from, from that point of view, it's really a nice, nice thing too. Any, any hints on the, on the worm-free corn? Because I, I think this is something where we've come a long ways in the last, yeah. uh, what, 20 years. Yeah. Because when I was, when I worked for, uh, on Michael Abelman's farm out in California back in 19, it must've been 1991, we actually went to farmer's market. We guaranteed a worm in every year, yeah, uh, right. but I don't think you can get away with that now. No, we, we, we don't have many worms at all. Um, basically, it comes down to two processes. One for, for the uh, European corn borer, which is really the ugliest, worst one. Um, and for that, we actually, uh, the product we use is the most effective because it involves sprays um, and very specifically timed, just two in the, in the course of the, of the season for that, for that planting, um, two sprays. And... Um, um, and, and the trick again, we watch that we release. That's the, actually the, the, the strongest thing. Uh, we release a trick again, we watch every, uh, every week because we grow sweet corn every week. Um, and a trick gamma of the right strain, which is called a strinier, uh, which, um, you know, which is available from, for instance, IPM labs in, in Southern New York. Um, and that's, we've been getting from them on a subscription basis every year forever. Very, very effective on the, corn, on the European corn borer. Um, and uh, the other one is the corn earworm, you know, which is at the tip of the year, which yeah. uh, which we use this thing called the zeolator, you know, which you get from Johnny's uh, catalog, Johnny's selected seeds catalog. We put it, 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 it delivers a drop of, of uh, corn oil um, with, uh, well, sometimes we put BT in it, but anyway, yeah. like corn oil uh, or you can use various oil, but we use corn oil. Anyway, and uh, that's a really labor-intensive thing, but it's also, uh, if you time it right, it's very effective, so you don't get corn airworm. But the other thing the other thing I should say, too, though, is trapping, uh, because trapping, to, so you know what the pressure is, is also hugely important, and we do that for both of those. Trapping to monitor, not trapping, to, not to right. reduce the level of right. pests. Trapping yeah. to monitor, so you know when the pressure's high, and you know, uh, you know when you have to do these things, because we don't do the stealating on, on every patch of every planting of sweet corn because we know that, uh, you know, the pressure's not there because the traps tell us, or it is there because the traps tell us, and then we go out and do it. Um, so, yeah, we have really good success with that, with that, and we don't have much much worms at all. We, we used to have a poster about that, kind of like you said, you know, a worm in every year. Um, but um, well, we, we, stopped, we stopped reading that poster pretty much because we don't have a worm in every year anymore. When we, in fact, we get like one out of, well, sometimes it's one out of 10, but sometimes it's actually one out of 100 or something. It's amazing. We just really have control. So, yeah, the tools have changed so much uh, in, the, in the last few years. I think there's just so many more. There's so much more available uh, all across the spectrum of organic production. Yeah, yeah. It's that, you know, those processes with the corn mill, and the worms, it is very management intensive. And you got to have a person who really knows how it works and pays a lot of attention to it and is doing it at the right time. And timing is so important. So it is very, it's not easy to do, but it's effective though. And it's not expensive other than the time of the person. That's the biggest expense. But, uh, but you know, you, conventional growers go out there and spray their corn, you know, two times a week or something with some pesticide, you know, for the whole course of the season to keep it, keep the worms out. And we're out there two times in the whole, in the whole season while each planting. 
um, and then and then the releasing the lust, which is not which is, is no labor at all. There's no time involved in that at all. So, uh, and the expense of it is really minimal. So, so it's not expensive, but it does take a lot of brain power, though. That's the thing. Which is, I think is kind of the definition of organic farming in a lot of yeah. Yeah, in a lot really of situations. Is. It's man's it really, really intensive farming. Yeah. So finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Borrow more money. <laughs> Invest more money. Get out, get out there, and get the best equipment, and and don't worry about spending money if you're gonna if you're gonna run a business that, you know, that's gonna produce an income. You gotta invest. And when you look around the economy and look at anybody else in any other business besides agriculture, of course everybody understands that. Anybody who went to business school, for instance, knows that you know instinctively. You just you gotta invest money to make money, and you gotta if you're gonna build a business, it takes capital. And and so that would definitely be my single thing to say to myself back there. Now now not, I'm not talking about the first year because you, you're not ready to jump in and invest a bunch of money when you don't know what you're doing or when you, you know when you don't have a steady market when you don't have you know the expertise. But the minute that you feel a little bit more confidence that you have a system that you have marketing down fairly well, then it's time to say. I am going to jump in and get the capital somehow or another. If I don't have it, I'm going to borrow it and I'm going to buy the equipment that I need. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to employ them, I'm going to hire the people that I need. And, and in other words, think of it more as a business and more of, of, of a, of a financial thing with, with capital and capitalization and the old word, um, rather than the attitude, I'm going to be this little tiny farm and I'm going to do all the work myself and I'm going to do it all with my hands and, and, I'm, and somehow or another, I'm going to make a living. Sorry, in this in the challenging economy that we're in, it ain't going to happen. You're not going to make a living if you don't invest in equipment and people. So, great. That's my spiel. Oh, I like it. I like <laughs> it, Jim. So, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation today, Jim. This has been been fantastic. I think there's been a lot of really good usable information. So thanks so much for taking time on a on your on your day off on Sunday. Now that you finally get those at the age of seventy one. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay, Chris. Uh, yeah, your questions were good. I I enjoyed it too. So hope somebody else gets some benefit from it. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 24 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Crawford. That's C-R-A-W-F-O-R-D. If you like what you hear, I would encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga, at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Please do take a moment to leave your comments on the Purple Pitchfork Facebook page page on the episode page for this show and at iTunes or just pick one. Your feedback really does make a difference in the number of people this show reaches and the impact that it can have. And that's why I'm doing it. So thank you so much for listening and for your support of this show. It's worth noting that this show does take a substantial amount of time to produce and there's a lot of costs associated with it as well. Our sponsors like Vermont Compost and Fertrell for this episode, Osborne Seed Company, Second Cup Media, and Audible for previous shows really support this work. Accessing their web pages through the show notes pages and sponsorship page on my website provides them with a way to measure your engagement. And of course, so does mentioning that you hear their ads on the Farmer to Farmer podcast. 
One more thing, if you've hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you, my listener, have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. If we choose your question to use on air, I'll even send you a Farmer to Farmer podcast mug. Keep weathering the weather, be safe out there, and keep the tractor running. 